I want to give you a sort of starting block for charity. So this might be basic to some people, but I don't think we should start without talking about charity as a virtue. So charity is love. Love is charity. But love can mean a lot of things. So I want to show you what it means when we call love a virtue. So I want to do that in three stages. First, what is a virtue? Second, why is charity a virtue? And third, what kind of virtue is charity? So your handout is fairly simple. It just has three sections to organize those three things and then a few texts. You can use the spaces for notes if you want. Okay, first, what is a virtue? The idea of virtue is at the service of the idea of action. So action is what virtue is about, acts. There are many kinds of beings in the universe, and we are beings who act. Some beings share a lot in common with us, human beings, but we don't say that they act. Human beings act. We find ourselves dropped into the blinding light of existence and we squirm around for a while and then eventually we do something about it we act we take our bearings we determine what we want whether we do that consciously or not and we act but if we want to find out what an act is the more we focus on an act the act itself it can become even more opaque. What is an act? So we need to find a way to study the act. Human acts are facts. They're things that are done, like the division of a cell, or like a meteor hitting a distant moon. A human act is a fact, it happens. These acts are op opaque, but once we begin to understand the scientific principles that underlie these facts, we can approach an understanding of acts themselves. So there are principles that stand behind or beneath facts. Facts have principles that stand behind them and help to explain what they are. So if you want to ex explain action, there are different kinds of principles that will help you explain action. Some of the principles are exterior. The exterior principles of acts are probably the more well-known ones. So a principle causes causes. One of the things that causes action is that there are desirable things out there that make us want to do them or get them. So exterior principles are good things, like desirable things. But there's also the fact that people avoid things because they're illegal. So law is an exterior principle. Or they're painful. So pain, punishment, is an exterior principle of acts, exterior to the one who acts. And then you can think about how God is an exterior principle. God causes acts. Sometimes he uses 
his saints or his angels to blind somebody, knock them off their horse. So these are principles of action which are exterior. They stand outside of us. But some principles lie within us. So there are interior principles. Two important principles of action come along with being born. So just being a human being. There are two very important principles of the human act. And these are natural. So if nature proceeds without violent incident, they'll develop naturally. The first is, for the most part, the more bodily principle. And we call it appetite. We have an internal principle of appetite, something in us that makes us act. Our animal nature, especially, disposes us to have appetites. We call these desires or passions, feelings, and they respond to those goods, those exterior goods in life. So this is one important interior principle of action. A second principle is also bodily in a certain sense, but at the same time, it goes beyond our bodily life. And this is reason. Reason is our capacity to understand. It's our capacity to reason. So reason is both a noun and a verb. We reason by means of reason. So reason is an interior principle. It's the second major interior principle of act, along with appetite. Together with appetite, it moves us to act in a certain way. But as I said, both of these interior principles are in us from birth. Everyone has them, even if there's some defect. Even if they aren't fully enacted, they're in us from birth. We also say, though, that people acquire something called a second nature. So virtues belong to what has been called second nature. The phrase second nature is meant to communicate that we have interior principles of action which don't come along automatically with our nature. But the fact that they don't come along automatically doesn't mean that they're unnatural. So if you had an alligator tail installed on yourself, you would be adding to your nature in a way that would be unnatural, be against your nature. Virtues, like an alligator tail, are something that we do pick up along the way during life. We add them to our nature. But that doesn't mean that they're unnatural the way that an alligator tail would be. So Aristotle says they're not by nature, but they're also not against nature. You could say they are according to it or they go along with it. So what is this second nature? When we act, we acquire something. We acquire a disposition to act again in the same way. Why is that? Why should that be the case? So the two interior principles, which I mentioned earlier, the bodily appetite, the passions, and reason, these work together. They work together to make us act. But each of them has 
its own kind of stability or nature, you might say. They enter into a kind of dance with each other. So they feel one another out and they move with each other. One of them moves more passively and the other one moves more actively. So the bodily appetites are classically called the passions. These are the ones that are more sort of responsive, passive, not only to things outside, goods, but also to reason. They're able to respond, obey, or resist reason. So they are like the passionate ones in the dance. They, they blush, or they shout, or they grow pale, or they tremble. So reason, then, is the more commanding one. It establishes boundaries. It pushes beyond the status quo, the place of stability. It sets goals and limits. So you could say that in living and in acting, these two interior principles, reason and the passions, establish patterns between themselves. They establish patterns of action. So after repeated action, the dance of all the principles of our acts, both interior and exterior, cause certain stable dispositions to arise, come to be in our souls. This phrase, stable disposition, is probably the best English phrase we have at present for the classical phrase, what Aristotle called simply a hexis in Greek, and what then the Latins would call a habitus. So in both of these ancient terms, the sense of the word is just having, to have. A hexis or a habitus is a having of something. So when we act, we begin to have something in us that keeps us acting that way. To do, to act, is not always to have. Sometimes you just act and there's no result in the soul. But to do can transform into to have. And then you have a hexis, a habit, a stable disposition. That's a broad category. And then a virtue is one of these, one of these stable havings. It's a stable disposition to act according to principles which are held, had internally, but also according to circumstances and principles which are externally present in a stable way. What do we call circumstances and principles that are externally present? Reality. So all of reality. Our stable dispositions respond to the whole of reality. And among the different kinds of having or stable dispositions, some are more serious than others. So some are not that important. So like knowing how to order a sandwich well in a way that doesn't annoy anybody that's one of these habits. It takes a little bit of practice. You have to respond. You have to have interior principles in line. But it's not like it doesn't make you a good person. So the more serious version of that is twofold. One of them makes you good. So obviously that's very important. 
and that's virtue. Virtue is a stable disposition that makes you good. The other is the opposite, and it's vice. It makes you evil. To have this kind of stable disposition makes you evil, and it makes your acts evil. Good and evil are not equals. So vice depends on virtue to be what it is. But virtue is that stable disposition, something you have, which makes you act consistently so as to act well. The good person is the person who acts well, but not just by accident, rather consistently, stably, and even joyfully, with ease. And my favorite is promptness. So it makes you act promptly. If you have a virtue, you're going to do the good thing, not after like thinking about it for a long time, but immediately, instinctively. This is what Father Jonah is like. And if you are a, uh, a vicious person, you will also act promptly to do evil. That's right. <laughs> so this little trio is very helpful for understanding what virtue and even vice can mean. Easy, joyful, and prompt. It disposes you to act in that manner. Now, I want to transition to the second part, uh, but first I have to mention one last aspect of the definition of virtue. To have one of these second natures that makes you good, it, it requires the special domination of reason. So the rule of reason. Reason is a big part of virtue. But reason is not a tame idea. Reason, if you meet it out in the open, in the context of mathematical physics, for example, it's a principle of order. It calms. It sets things right. But reason also stalks at night, okay, in the back streets. Reason is out there. If you meet reason in a dark alley, it can look scary. And theology, the use of reason to understand God, is kind of a dark alley in this way. So reason becomes something strange in theology. The concepts that you met in the daylight of natural science, for example, when you bring them into the high stakes back alley game of theology, can get a little wild. So according to reason, great. So the second stage, so what is a virtue? Okay, we have something of that. Is love a virtue? Love. Why is love a virtue? Love is supposed to be a virtue. It had better be. So virtue is a stable disposition to act in accord with reason. And it's a quality of the soul which makes us good. So love. Love is one of these qualities of the soul. And this makes sense. If you take, for example, St. Paul and his words on love in 1 Corinthians, he says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. So to remain, he says, re they remain. That means they're stably present. There's something we have. So love is a hexis, a habitus. He further says, if I do not have love, I am nothing. I am a gong. So a gong rings just once and then it fades away. This is not like that. 
Love isn't just a gong. It stays around. It persists. It's a hexis. So love is a disposition. And it takes its shape, moreover, from actions. Love, in this sense, is not just a feeling. So love is more like a shape that is carved out. It's carved out in the one who commits acts of love. So St. Paul talks about love being patient. It says it rejoices in truth. To rejoice is an act. It protects. It perseveres in danger. These are qualities of acts. These are descriptions of actions. Love is a disposition which endures and does not fail. It says love does not fail. It guides the heart, letting the fullness of its goodness shine out in the world. Other virtues include courage, prudence, and humility. And they develop the natural powers of the soul. So the soul has natural powers, and they develop them to act consistently and easily, promptly, as part of daily life. And now love, we can see, is among these. It's not just a feeling of affection or a commitment to a person. It makes the one who has it good and strong and even wise. It causes what Aristotle called beautiful action, action that is beautiful, it shines out. So, so far, so good. Love belongs among these interior principles of the act. Like courage, it orders the passions, and it orders them in accord with a higher principle of reason, to act well in human life. The problem, like I said, is that theology is a dark alley, and we are about to be mugged by love. So love, love is divine, right? Well, that is probably the weak way of putting it. God is love. 1 John 4. God is love. God. So someone could say, love is not something you have. Love is a tsunami washing over you, destroying your city. Love is a force that the human soul can't bear. It certainly can't contain God. All you can hope to do in the face of God, the pillar of fire in the wilderness, is to hope that he will give you the grace to stand. Can you stand before love, which is coming to wipe you out? You can hope to abide in love. It's not some mere character trait that you have in you. You would hope that you can abide in it, the sea of love. And that would be true. John goes on, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. So, to live in love, no longer God living in you, which would be strange, but you live in love. You hope to sort of move into the neighborhood of love. So, which is it? Does love abide in me, or do I abide in it? Do I have charity, or does charity have me? St. Augustine struggled with questions like this, and he often returned to another passage from St. Paul for help. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says, The love of God has been poured out into our hearts. It has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who is given to us. So all of those words are important. Truly, God is in us, poured out, given. So I have said what virtue is, and I've said that charity is a virtue. St. Paul agrees. So the third thing to say is how. How does this work? What kind of virtue is charity? What quality of virtue is it? What distinguishes it? And this is necessary because it's not the normal kind. So charity is a virtue poured out. Before, I was talking about how virtue arises from acts which are done in such a way that they result in a stable disposition to act. So according to what we have in us, what we come equipped with, appetites and reason, we form a way of acting, conduct. And according to what guides us from outside, goods in our world and laws which we receive through the power of our minds and the authority and punishment of our superiors, these, these all form a way of acting, which becomes a second nature, something quasi-permanent. So this is definitely not something poured out. This is more like something hammered in through effort and experience. And this is called acquired virtue. So virtue which is acquired through getting hammered into you through repeated action. Christians believe that God dwells in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. One of the exterior principles of action, which I have not mentioned, is called grace. So grace, like law, is exterior to us. But unlike law, it doesn't remain exterior to us. Grace is sometimes characterized by a kind of violence. So the word violence is used to understand grace in the sense that it comes from outside and it winds up like changing you, wounding you. It's really only something violent, though, insofar as we are evil. We have vices. So since we have vices, we resist this principle of grace. Grace is God making himself something in us. Grace is God coming to be in us. And this can do a lot of different things to us. This can move us to tears. This can set the heart on fire. And it can hurt. So the medieval theologians were rightly confused by this idea of charity dwelling in the soul. The Holy Spirit, the love of God, is truly poured out in us. But the Holy Spirit is not something that can be divided up. You can't have a part of the Holy Spirit in you. You can't have the whole thing in you either. If you had the whole... Okay, so that's maybe more obvious. So the idea of a poured out virtue addresses these questions. And another term for that is an infused so to infuse means to pour out. So infused virtue address these questions about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Grace also is a certain participation in the divine goodness. So St. Thomas talks about grace being another thing which comes to be in us by God's making it a part of us. 
and he uses this term participation. So participation means to take a part, uh, as in to take one part, uh, to take part in, to participate. So there's that sort of quotidian meaning, basic meaning. But when it's used philosophically, it refers to something more than material parts and holes. Things are white because, why? Because they take part in whiteness itself. So whiteness itself. But whiteness itself is not something that you can find floating somewhere in space. Whiteness itself would have to be immaterial because only material things can be really white, but this is whiteness itself. It's not the color of anything. It's the whiteness in which every white thing takes a part. But it creates kind of a paradox because each of those white things are a white something, whereas whiteness itself is just whiteness and it doesn't have a something which is white. So participation in this sense means that there is a truer and more real reality in which material realities have a share. This is the idea of participation. Okay, we participate the divine goodness. St. Thomas says this frequently when he's talking about grace. Every virtue then is in some sense a participation in God, the, the only one who is good, right? As Jesus himself said, only God is good. So some virtues do this according to a natural way. The virtue of justice, for example. Justice reflects the divine justice, but it does so in terms of our natural relationships, like paying the right amount of money. It's not a divine thing. Many of the following conferences of this retreat will probably elaborate on some of these questions of justice. So justice takes for its object something natural, even if it's something very lofty, even if it's the good of all. It's something natural. It also has a natural way of coming to be in us. Justice as a virtue has a natural way of coming to exist in us through upbringing and practice. Your parents telling you to do the right thing. Attention and deliberation, counting, calculating, judging who deserves what. So that's a natural way, but charity does not have this. So charity does not have a natural way of coming to be in us. Charity is supernatural. Once again, this is not something against our nature. It's not like putting something that doesn't belong in your nature into it. Instead, it's like a second nature. However, it's a new kind of second nature because it's a participation in a higher nature. Charity is a participation in the divine nature. God revealed, so that, okay, it's a participation in the divine nature. Kind of a wild, once, if we understand what that means, we'd see that it's a wild claim to participate in God's own nature. Christians are bold in saying this because it's just in the Bible. God reveals in Scripture that he intends to make us partakers or participators of the divine nature. It's in 2 Peter. This is the purpose of our life. 
supernatural happiness of sharing God's own nature, which is joy and love itself. God's nature is love. So a higher kind of virtue than what we have by nature is required. The three theological virtues, three theological virtues are called faith, hope, and love. The three theological virtues are higher, not only because God causes them to come to be in us by pouring them out, but they also direct us to an object which transcends the reach of our natural principles. God transcends the reach of all of those principles I was talking about earlier. I've tried to emphasize principles here as things which help us act. Now, listen to how St. Thomas speaks about the theological virtues as principles that lead us to supernatural happiness. So this is the first text. I gave you some extra stuff, but here's the part in bold. And because such happiness, supernatural happiness, surpasses the capacity of human nature, man's natural principles... Principia Naturalia Hominis, which enable him to act well according to his capacity, do not suffice to direct man to this same happiness. Hence, it is necessary for man to receive from God some additional principles. So, aliqua principia, some other principles, whereby he may be directed to supernatural happiness. Among these three theological virtues, supernatural principles, faith, hope, and charity, charity takes the first place. What kind of virtue is charity? St. Thomas has different ways of explaining why, as the Bible says, the greatest is love. One of them is friendship. So the idea of friendship is the primary way that St. Thomas talks about charity. And that's an interesting question, how virtue can be friendship. Because where does that reside? Where is the friendship between me and my friend? Is it in me? Is it between us? Okay, so that's a question. But I'm going to pass over that. Instead, since I have mentioned participation, I'm going to end with Aquinas' refrain that charity is a participation of the Holy Spirit. So he talks a lot about this. Charity is a participation of the Holy Spirit. St. Thomas writes, this is the second text that you have, Charity can be in us, neither naturally nor through acquisition by the natural powers, but by the infusion of the Holy Spirit, who is the love of the Father and the Son, and the participation of whom in us is created charity. Love is in us, so we have it. It's in us as a stable disposition. And for this to be true, St. Thomas says, created charity. You notice that last phrase, created charity. It operates. It causes us to act according to a created mode, according to our natural powers, but with a quality, a certain quality that exceeds our natural powers. This creates the strange situation of having something in us which is actually superior to us. So if you think about your own bodily organs, uh, you are superior to each one of those. You know, they all are working to serve you. 
Everything in you is working to serve the whole, which is you, the person that you are. So the whole body is animated by the soul, and the soul is superior to any one of the parts. So how can it be that with charity, something comes to be in the soul, which is greater than the soul? This is a participation in the Holy Spirit. God has come to be and to move in you promptly, joyfully, and easily by grace. So charity acts. Even though we don't get it by doing repeated actions, charity acts. It has several outward acts, which St. Thomas goes through individually. So beneficence, almsgiving, and the, the best one, fraternal correction. Uh, but its chief act, the chief act of charity is interior. It's not exterior. The chief act of charity is to love. And most of all, to love God. To love God with charity is to love him with his own love. I mentioned earlier that virtuous acts are prompt. Okay, I mentioned that several times. Charity forms us to do things like help the poor or say the right thing to friends or family or enemies with a certain special immediateness or promptness. It helps us, it forms us, it guides us to be like that gradually. Interiorly, loving God with a prompt and instantaneous love is the effect of having charity as a virtue. So this is to become like God because not only he is the one who loves himself as God, but also because he is pure act. So God is an act which does not, you can't even say that it never stops acting because it never begins acting. It is eternally acting. There's no temporality to it. It is pure act. The most perfect love is the love of God for himself. The Father loves the Son from eternity. The Spirit is this love. And this love exists outside of time. By charity, this love, which is God, comes down to dwell in us, in time, in our souls. So how does this work? Actually, for St. Thomas, this is not that strange. He says it's like light in water. Light is a more noble, a more pure and stable and powerful being than water. You could dispute that, but I think it makes sense. Light is nobler than water, and yet it comes to dwell in it. Light comes to be in water, in a medium that is beneath it. The light of heaven has given us a participation in itself. It has come to be in us. So like light, charity is fast. Light is fast. Charity is fast. And it is the source of life and knowledge, both life and knowledge. May this charity illumine us as we seek to know it better. Thank you. <laughs>